Amen. 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 Good morning, Strong Tower. How are we doing today? Good, good. If you are new with us this morning, we want to welcome you again to Strong Tower. We're glad you could be our guest today as we worship Jesus on this uh, rainy, kind of dreary, windy morning. Uh, but we're here to worship Jesus today. If you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. And as Mike alluded to earlier, um, you know, we have traditionally as a church celebrated Martin Luther King weekend with a block party on Monday. But today, uh, or this weekend, we've had to cancel because of the rise in, in the COVID cases. And so with a heavy heart that we have to do that, second year in a row that we've missed it, and so we are hoping that later on in the spring, if numbers uh, get better and we're able to do something similar, we can do that, but be praying for that and uh, be praying for our community as we walk through just more tough, difficult transitions and um, just uncertainty, so pray for, for our church in that. Hebrews chapter 10 uh, this morning, looking at verses 23 to 25, if you're there, say Amen. Hear the reading of God's word. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, communal practices, communal practices. Let's pray before we dive in together. Father, we come to your word today hungry. We come thirsty. We come in a dry and weary land. As the deer pants for the water, so we pant for you, as the psalmist says. And so, God, we pray by your spirit that you would show up today to meet us where we are whether that's a time of celebration or a time of mourning, a time of receiving or loss, whatever it is, God, we still need you. And so we pray your word would fill us today, that it would transform us from head to toe. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because, well, it's dead right? And it's dead because of the salt content. And the salt content is so high that literally nothing can live in the Dead Sea. It's in fact the saltiest body of water on the entire planet. It's nine times saltier than the ocean. Think about that for a moment. I mean, it's so salty, no fish can live in water. It's so salty that, that there are no boats. You look out on the horizon and there are no boats out on the Dead Sea. It's, it's not that small either. It's a, it's a massive body of water. It's 10 miles by 50 miles. I mean, that's a huge body of water. And you look out and it's just desolate. And you think, like, who, who would come to this kind of place? Well, the only people who actually go to the Dead Sea who like to go there are the tourists. Like that, that's who go to the Dead Sea. They, they bring them in on these buses out in the middle of nowhere and, and they drop them off and the tourists will go bobbing in the water 
Because if you ever heard about the Dead Sea and you know about the water, it, it's so dense because of the salt that you actually can't sink. Like it, you just prop right up to the water. You prop up, you know, it, whatever, you can't swim. This is the best place to go because you can't sink. It's, it's incredible. It's this fascinating experience. It's a lot of fun. But man, until you get out and you realize that you are now drenched in salt, there's salt everywhere. Every nook and cranny of your body. You're, you're getting salt out for days. It's miserable. But people go, and nothing can live there because of the salt. But what's fascinating about the Dead Sea is, is uh, there's actually fresh water that flows into it. The Jordan River and a couple other streams of water, they flow into the Dead Sea, but there's no outlet. So this fresh water comes in and and brings life and nourishment, and then there's no outlet, nowhere for it to go. And so the water in this hot desert sun evaporates and leaves behind the salt, and it just gets saltier. And it just keeps producing death. Because, listen, death is the result of receiving without giving. That's what happens, right? Right? And that's, that's what happens in all of life. You think about that pattern. Life is, is defined by both. It's always receiving and giving. right? We, we inhale breath into our lungs and then we exhale. We, we receive rest as we rest and sleep at night and then we give our life away as we work in the day. Right? There's this pattern, this, this receiving and giving. It, it's the pattern of how this life works. And, and the moment we stop doing one or the other, death happens. The moment we stop receiving or the moment we stop giving, it's death. And it's no different for us spiritually. There's a guy named Robert Mulholland who wrote this fantastic book on spiritual formation. And he defines spiritual formation like this. He says it's the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. Did you catch that? Did you catch both? He says it's the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. That's receiving. And then you're for the sake of others. That's, that's the giving. So it's both. It's, it's receiving and it's giving, and, and the temptation in our spiritual life is to make it one or the other. The temptation in the spiritual life, particularly I think for our, our consumer culture, is that we would make our spiritual life all about receiving. I mean, that makes sense, right? We, we live in a world where we're constantly bombarded with messages that, that tell us notifications on our phone, commercials on TV, Instagram, whatever it is, they're telling you to evaluate your experience by what benefits me. What, what benefits me? How, how can I get better because of this? How can I enjoy it more? And, and so and there's nothing wrong necessarily with having your desires met, but if that's all it's about... It's dangerous. It's dangerous, right? And it's the same thing spiritually. If it's all about receiving, we might spend a lot of time in prayer, but we don't know how to be with people. We might spend a lot of time reading scripture, but we don't know how to serve people. We might spend a lot of time worshiping and raising our hands, but we're worthless when it comes to loving someone. Right? It has to be both. This life in Christ that we've been talking about, it requires both. 
And so today we're finishing up this short little series that we've been calling Soul Care, and it's based on our theme for the year. So just because this is the end of the series doesn't mean it's the last time you'll hear about it. You'll hear about it the whole year as we think about this theme that we've chosen for our church to focus on, which is soul care, both for ourselves and for others, right? So we want to be people who are caring for souls, both first for ourselves and then for others. And so last week we talked about how we do that for ourselves, We talked about how we have personal practices, the practices of prayer and scripture and Sabbath, these things that help us receive, right? We get in the presence of God and we receive from Him, but now our spiritual formation is for the sake of others. It's for others, not just us. And so today we're going to talk about communal practices. What are these communal practices that help us to care for the soul's of others. If you're taking notes today, I want, I want you to write down three of them that we're going to talk about. Gather, engage, and encourage. Gather, engage, and encourage. So let's begin with gathering. The first one is gathering. Look at verse 23. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, stop right there for a second, because Hebrews, you got to know the context to, to go on. Hebrews is written in the context of persecution. So if you think about their world, Hebrews was written in a time where the local church was was literally being dragged out of their homes. Some of them were losing their property. The Roman Empire was threatening their lives. There was a lot going on, and it was dangerous. It was was an environment that was creating anxiety and fear, and and people weren't sure if we should get together or not, and and people were questioning whether they should keep their faith in Jesus or they should go back to, to their Jewish roots. And so this was kind of the turmoil that was happening behind the writing of this book. And and if you're listening, you can hear some of the parallels, right? Between not not necessarily the the extreme persecution of, of Hebrews, but our own time in the pandemic. I mean, I don't know if you've talk to any of your brothers and sisters in Christ, but maybe you're experiencing this yourself. People are struggling. I mean, people are anxious. People are lonely. People are afraid. People are wondering, is it worth following Jesus anymore? People are unsure about what's going to happen in the future. And so there's all this surrounding the church. And the real question is, how do you have unwavering hope in these kinds of conditions? How do you hold fast to Jesus when everything around you seems to be crumbling? Well, he tells us at least one here, because the book, the first half of the book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus is better, and then there's a turn in chapter 10. Chapter 10 is now, here's how you live that out. And one of the first things he says is right here in chapter, or in verse 25. He says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Now listen, the Greek right there for habit is ethos or, or custom or, or your way of life, right? It's the same word used of Jesus in Luke chapter 4 where it says about Jesus, as was his custom, his ethos, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. In other words, it was Jesus' way of life, it was his ethic, his, his habit that he would go to the people of God and gather with the people of God to worship God together. And what, what's happened in Hebrews, the writer is saying, is they've traded their custom. They've traded their custom of gathering for now neglecting. And he says, you're, you're in a dangerous place. 
You're in a dangerous place because your new custom, your new habit is tearing apart this community and it might tear apart your faith. Listen, what he's saying is community isn't a coincidence, it's a custom. It's a custom, it's a habit, a way of life. Listen, they called it the miracle catch. A few years ago, uh, there was this video that went viral by a guy named Samuel Kemp, and he was riding a roller coaster, riding a roller coaster in Spain. And uh, he was with a few friends, and, and it's one of those big, tall roller coasters. They're excited, and, and they're all strapped in, waiting in their car, waiting for the roller coaster to get going. They look over, and the car next to them, there's a guy who drops his phone down on the little floor where, where, the, where your feet rest. And, and the guy couldn't get to his phone because everyone's strapped in, the ride's about to begin. And so everybody was kind of looking at each other, wondering what should we do? And then Samuel said, well, get ready to catch. And everyone kind of laughed and then it took off. And sure enough, this is what he says. He says in the article as he wrote about the video, he says, the ride started and I totally forgot about the phone because I was in the moment. And then after the first drop, we rose up and I saw the phone drift across my view. And so I reached out and managed to catch it. Can you imagine? You're on this roller coaster. It's raging down and then pulls up and you see a phone float across the sky. And you happen to have your hands up screaming and it goes right into your hand at just the right moment and you grab it. I mean, what are the odds? And they caught the whole thing on video because they have a, a reaction video right there in front of you. And so you can see the video, him just screaming and then catches it just like that. I mean, what are the odds? But listen, that's how I think some of us in the church, we treat community in the church. Like it's some miraculous catch that we're, we're on this raging roller coaster called life, and, and somehow at just the right moment, we might just be in the perfect spot to catch it. And it's just going to be a coincidence. It's just going to happen. But community, as Hebrews says, it isn't a coincidence. It's a custom. See, if it's a coincidence, then, then my life doesn't really matter. My habits, my customs, my way of doing things, it doesn't really matter to build community. I can just do whatever I want and it'll happen organically. It'll happen. It, it'll just be. But if it's a custom, then what I do in my gathering matters greatly. It matters greatly. It means I have to fight to show up. It means I have to show up even if I don't feel like it. It means when I don't feel like it, I should show up even more because now I need it even more. It means I have to make this a consistent habit in my life to be together with God's people because it has to become a habit. Isolation is the enemy of spiritual formation. It, it is the enemy of spiritual formation. And listen, the pandemic ha has exploded all of our customs and habits. Whatever your life looked like in March 2020, I guarantee you it doesn't look like in January 2022. It doesn't for any of us. And so it, it's kind of blown up all the things that we once knew. And, and there's not even a new normal. People talk about a new normal. There is no new normal yet. It's just a new change every couple weeks and days. It's like constant fluctuation and movements. And, and so it's really hard. It's really hard to have habits in this season. 
It's really hard to build into your life rhythms. And so listen, that doesn't make community less necessary. It means we have to be more intentional. It means we have to figure out ways to make this a custom in our life some way, somehow. And, and listen, here's the tension. And I'm just going to name the tension. How do you gather when it's sometimes dangerous to gather? That's the question that everyone's wrestling with. And some people answer that by saying, oh, it's really not dangerous. It's not a big deal. It's, and, and we deny the danger. And then other people can't figure out what to do because it is dangerous and, and it's so difficult. And, and I believe Hebrews is written for this kind of environment. But the beauty of God's word is he doesn't really give us details like do this step and this step and this step. And, and there's not all, they're not all the same parallels. But, but it was dangerous in Hebrews for them to gather. And yet he says gather. Here's what I take from that. Take this for what it's worth. I think what it means for us is we have to be creatively committed. Whatever that means. And and what I mean by that, the two parts, is commitment means I know I need community in my life. I know that it's going to happen by a custom and a habit in my life that I make this something that's a priority. And so I'm committed to it, no matter what the circumstances may be but I have to be creative because these conditions are not what's normal. So that means for some people in our church, it's not going to be wise for you to gather in person. And that's okay. Like, they shouldn't feel bad about that. We shouldn't make them feel bad about that. That's okay. But here's what we have to do. We have to all together get creative. We have to be creative. We, we first have to commit to it and say, this matters. And we all thought this wasn't going to be this long. We, we all thought this was going to be a couple weeks or months or whatever. And it just keeps extending. We need endurance in that creativity. We need endurance to say, I'm going to find a way. I don't know what that looks like. It, it might be a, you know, a weekly FaceTime with your friends. It, it might be every day you just call somebody that you haven't seen in a while. Just take a five-minute phone call and say, you know what, I haven't seen so-and-so, I'm going to call them today. It might mean you have outdoor gatherings if it's 90 degrees. I I don't know. It it might mean that that you go check on somebody who you know is struggling in isolation. It, It might mean that you start a prayer text chain and you're texting every day what you're getting out of the scriptures and how you can pray for one another. I don't know what it means, but you got to get creative. You have to gather. You have to gather. And then when you gather, it brings us to this second practice. Listen to what he says. Uh, This is the second one, engaging. Engaging. Look at verse 24. He says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now remember, spiritual formation isn't just about us. It's for the sake of others. Right? And so right here, he's saying, he's saying that our communal practices are not inward, but they're outward focused. And he uses this word stir up, which is fascinating. It's a word that literally means provoke to anger. So it's usually used in other contexts negatively, like you made somebody angry, you made somebody really upset. But here it's used positively, and it's used as kind of this positive irritant. Right? It's meant to be like a spur that, that pushes you in a direction you wouldn't go on your own. Or, or somebody who kind of comes along and lovingly pokes you. That, that's what it's called to be. You're going to move forward where you need to be. 
See, when the jet fighter planes were first invented, uh, obviously they flew much faster than propeller planes, right? And uh, they, they didn't really anticipate the problem that they were going to have with the pilots being able to jump out of the plane if the plane was going down and, and activate their parachute. And so as they were running tests, they realized a couple problems. I mean, theoretically, it seems like the pilot could just, you know, do what they got to do. They could get lean forward and roll out of the plane and let their parachute go. But when it came to the moment, they were not able to do that because the forces were so strong on them that, that they couldn't literally push out. And then even if they could, they, they didn't want to because it was going so fast, they were afraid. And so the engineers went back to the drawing boards and they realized they came up with this thing called the ejection seat. Now famous, right? The ejection seat where you pull a little handle and in just a few seconds this sequence of events happens and one of those things is there's an explosive under your seat and the explosive goes off and it launches your seat out of the plane. So what you couldn't do yourself, you are, it's now being done for you. You are moving out, right? This is what he's saying in Hebrews. He's saying this is an outside help to say, I'm going to stir you on. I'm going to pursue you and poke you and prod you so that you can do what God has called you to do that you wouldn't do yourself. But listen, but first, he says, consider how. In other words, not all stirring is good. Not all provoking is love. The word for consider how is to notice, to reflect, to, to understand, to, to take it in. It, it's really an incarnational word. It, it means that you're going, to, you're going to step into someone else's shoes, into their world, and try to understand what it's like. Right? What's it like to be them? What's their story? What are their struggles? What are their victories? What, what does it mean to be in their environment? What, what is it to be them? And so what he's saying is before we engage in community, before we start running around stirring people up to do things, we have to slow down and consider how and have this mind full of somebody. And what, in other words, he's saying community considers others before ourselves. It considers others before ourselves. Let me ask you, when you come to a gathering, who is your mind full of? I mean, when you, when you go to your connect group, what, what's filling your mind? When you, when you go to a grow class or you come to church on Sunday or you go have breakfast with your friend or, or you make a phone call, what, when you gather with God's people, who is filling your mind? Is it you or is it them? Is it you or, or is it other folks? And, and this is, again, one of the hardest things about building community in a consumer culture where we are trained every day to think about us. We, we, we take in so many messages that help us see, you know, this is how your life can be better. This is, I mean, our media is curated for us so that it's just the right desire that we desire. But here, what, what, what if you flipped it? What if you showed up to every single gathering, not wondering, what can I get out of this? But what can I give here? And what will happen is now you'll open up your eyes to all the people around you who maybe they just lost a, a parent. Maybe they are going through a hard marriage. 
Maybe they're struggling in their finances. Maybe they're caught in some habitual sin. Whatever it may be, but now you open up your eyes to what's actually happening in the lives around you and you see that there are people for you to consider. To consider how? See, without considering others, we end up full of pride. We end up so full of pride. And in a cross-cultural community, this, this is even more essential. I mean, because the, the greater the diversity, the, uh, the more difficult community. Did you catch that? The, the greater the diversity, the more difficult the community. Why is that? It's because when, when you're trying to relate to somebody different than you, the assumption is they are like me, they think like me, they act like me, they know what's going on. And so it's, it takes a lot of consideration to have relationships with people different than you. It takes a lot of work to say, I'm going to slow down and really think about them. I'm, I'm, I'm going to think about people who have different political convictions than me, people who have different economic situations, people who are from different racial backgrounds, right? Instead of assuming I know their experience, instead of assuming I know how they think, I'm going to slow down and consider how. Consider how. And it's that slow patient, sometimes painful work of considering that makes love possible. But it also can't stop there. Right? It can't stop with just considering. It has to move into stirring at some point. It has to move into that loving poke at some point or will be empty of love. Right? You have to have both. It's always both. You have to have this sense of, uh, of considering someone and knowing their story and entering into their life, but then you have to actually do something. To engage with others around you, you you have to act, you have to move into their life, you have to see what's going on and then respond. And, And listen, right now in your circle of relationships, I guarantee you there's people in need. I guarantee you there's people who need a friend. I guarantee there are people who are lonely, who are confused, who are struggling, and they're waiting for someone to engage. To say, I've considered you, I want to listen to you, I want to receive what you're saying, but now I want to engage in your life and that we can have this mutual relationship where you're considering me and I'm considering you and we speak into each other's lives. To stir them up. To love and good works. Do you hear that? He's saying, you have to gather, and when you gather, you have to engage. And when you engage, he then gives us this last one. It's encouraged. It's encouraged. Look again at verse 25. He goes on to say, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, the writer gives this clear contrast between neglecting and encouraging. So neglecting is this apathetic attitude, right? Nothing really matters. It doesn't, I don't care what's going on. I don't matter. They don't matter. I'm just apathetic. It's this neglect, this this defeat mentality. But then he says there's this other way of living where you can encourage, where encouragement is this, this engagement, this sympathetic, empathetic life where you're moving into someone else's story. And the Greek word he uses here actually is parakaleo. And parakaleo, you might recognize that as the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. It's the same root word, but but it's this word that means to come alongside, to strengthen, to to advocate for, right? In other words, where where you're weary 
I'll come be strong for you. Where you're confused, I'll come help give you counsel. Where you're suffering, I will come suffer with you. That's what it means to be an encourager. It's to come alongside somebody as they are in their pain and in their suffering and to bring comfort. But you can't give what you haven't received. And this is what Paul says later on in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Did you catch that? It's actually the same word, parakaleo. He's saying God is the one who comes to us to comfort us first. God comes to us to, to parakaleo us. He comes alongside and and he nurtures us and he advocates for us and he cares for us and he counsels us. And it's his love and his mercy that's poured out on us that he says, now I'm turning around so that you can pour it out to others. But he goes first. See, God comforts us so that we can comfort others. That's how it works. About 15 years ago, uh, there was a Michigan resident by the name of Matt Jones and uh, he decided to donate, kind of out of the, out of the blue, his, his kidney to someone who was in need. He just decided out of the goodness of his heart that, that someone out there might be in need. And he thought, you know what, I can be that person who can meet that need. And so he went to the hospital and told them he wanted to do that. And he donated a kidney. But he didn't realize that when he did that, he was going to start this chain of events. And when he donated his kidney, it went to a lady by the name of Barbara. And Barbara's husband was so inspired by his kind of random act of kindness that he decided he's going to donate a kidney to someone else in need. And then he donates his to this lady named Angela. And Angela's family member then went on and donated to someone else. And it started what no one expected. In fact, it was the first of its kind. It was the first of what's now called a kidney donation chain which is basically if someone receives a kidney donation, their family member, one of their family members decides they're going to then go pass it on and and donate to someone else who's in need. And now it started this worldwide movement where there's hundreds of these across the world, and some of them are into the hundreds. Like it's gone from person to person to person to person to person. And what's amazing is he had no intention of doing that. And so recently they were interviewing him about how he started this movement on accident. And he said this, he says, all I know is there's a good chance that when I'm dead and gone, this chain will still be going. Because what they received, they gave. But it started somewhere. That's how the gospel works. The gospel is this chain. It's this never-ending chain of God's comfort where Jesus comes alongside of us and, and parakaleos us by becoming one of us. That's what Jesus does in the gospel. He comforts our afflictions by taking the afflictions himself. He comforts those who are trapped by sin. He comforts those who are walking in despair. He comforts those who are enduring unimaginable pain. He he comforts by becoming uncomfortable. That's how the gospel is, right? He comforts by carrying a cross up Calvary. He comforts by wearing a crown of thorns. He comforts by feeling the lashes on his back and the spear in his side. He comforts by taking all the punishment, all the wrath, all the judgment that we deserve for our sin upon himself. And the Bible says this was his custom. This was his way. This was his habit. This is what he did over and over and over again. This is the comfort that he pours out for us 
And now he says, now what you've received, you give. And this custom of his comfort starts this chain of love. It's, it's being full of his comfort that we can comfort those in need. Right? It's receiving from our God that we can give generously. It's the encouragement of the gospel that gives us the courage of love so that when we're empty, he fills us. When we're tired, he strengthens us. When we're anxious, he, he calms us. When we're fearful, he protects us. Wherever we find ourselves, God says, I will comfort you so that you can be a comfort in whatever the affliction may be because my love will overflow through you. And yet your greatest comfort is yet to come. Because Jesus is coming again, right? As Hebrews says, the day is drawing near. Where our comfort is rooted in His first coming, it's going to be uh, completed in His second coming. The day is drawing near when every tear will be dried up. The day is drawing near when every sickness will be healed. The day is drawing near when every hope will be fulfilled. Every sin will be gone. Every death will be in the past. That day is drawing near. Our comfort is coming because Jesus is coming. Our comfort is on the way. And yet today, he says, I can comfort you now. I can comfort you now so that you can be a comfort. This this is the base of what it means to be a community, that we reflect the gospel in our life. We receive what Jesus has given so that we can give what Jesus has given. This is how it works. And so maybe you're here this morning, and as we close, you you need that comfort today. You find yourself in that, that same affliction of sin and suffering that's over and over, and you find yourself wondering, is there any comfort? And God is calling you back to himself to say, I can bring you comfort. I can bring you rest. I can be there to, to walk alongside of you, to counsel you, to care for you, to encourage you. But I want you to know, when I comfort you, I'm calling you to be a comfort. And so when I come alongside, I'm, I'm pouring comfort in you that, that it might outpour into other folks. And this is the calling he's got for us, for all of us this morning. But first, he says, you have, you have to receive. You have to receive before you can give. And so if that's you this morning, he's, he's inviting you to himself to, to receive first, to receive the comfort that only Jesus can give. That as we put our faith in him, he says, I will come into your life and transform it so you might be different. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we invite you in. We invite you in to create community among us as a church, but even community amongst us and God where you have restored our relationship as we were broken in our sin and struggling, separated, isolated from you. God, you come into our lives. You break in. You incarnate. You consider how by becoming one of us. And so God, we ask you to do the same thing today. By the Spirit of Jesus, may you come in. May you bring comfort where we are weak. May you bring hope where we're despairing. May you bring holiness and deliverance where we are stuck in sin. God, whatever it may be today, this practice of being encouraged by you, may it out or overflow into our lives, out into the world. But first in us, we pray in Jesus' name.